Uh, the last two weeks, it's been our privilege to work through uh, chapters uh, 11 and 12 of the book of Numbers, two texts about complaining. We picked up those stories in those two chapters where it starts with the complaining of the mixed multitude or the rabble who lived out on the perimeter of the camp. And they complained uh, about having to eat and look at manna instead of the fruits and vegetables of Egypt. Their complaints were so bad it led Moses himself to complain as a leader of the people, and he eventually asked God to take his life. But instead of doing that, God intervenes and he provides for Moses and the people while also punishing them through his provision. Unfortunately, though, the complaining didn't stop at the end of Numbers 11, and so last week we looked at Numbers 12, a much shorter chapter, but a chapter that describes the complaints of two people against Moses, Miriam and Aaron. You remember this last week? Uh, Miriam and Aaron complain about uh, Moses. They ask, what is so special about him and his wife? Uh, So God reminds them what's so special about Moses. He explained that Moses was a leader and that he had chosen him to lead the people and that Miriam and Aaron should should not be so quick to complain against a prophet like Moses. God then also sends judgment primarily against the main instigator in the story. The main complainer, if you were here last week, you would know, the main complainer was Miriam. I think a private moment between her and her brother, uh, her own jealousy of heart stirs her to ask, what's so special about our brother Moses? And so God sends leprosy to her, but will eventually heal her. In both cases, God takes complaining very seriously. And he demonstrates how complaining about our circumstances and uh, the people in our lives, it's, it's actually rooted in, uh, in God's children, uh, in the child of God's discontentment with what he is doing in, in their life. Uh, so today we, we go to Numbers 13 and we come to a two-chapter section that we're going to take three weeks to look at. This is a very familiar story. It's the spy story. And I said in the email I sent out last night to the members, you know, everyone loves a good spy story. So we're going to get to focus on this for three weeks when the children of Israel send 12 spies or scouts into the promised land uh, to check out the provision that God had given to them. Before we look closely at the narrative itself, though, I want to just pull out what I think are a few special qualities about this story. Uh, Two special qualities. First, consider with me uh, its familiarity. I want to acknowledge that this is one of the most familiar stories, I think, in Scripture, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Many of us have known this story since we were very young. Uh, How many of you know the song, Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Can I see your hand? Okay, now, keep your hand up. How many of you remember the hand motions? Okay, now, don't worry. We're not going to sing it today. Uh, I was asking my wife about a song this mo- last night, and, and 
she's starting to respond in the same way every time. Whenever I ask her, do you know this song? She'll say, very first statement, you're not going to lead it in church, are you? <laughs> I say, no, dear, I'm not going to lead it in church. Uh, but I just make the point that we've known this story for quite a while. Twelve men going in to spy on Canaan. It's a well-known story, but its familiarity, I think, might have to do something with the second important quality that I'll point out to you. The second important quality is its importance, the importance of the story. So we should consider its importance, and I want to make a case that this is one of the most important stories you'll find in your Bible. Um, you say every section of the Bible is important, I recognize that, but, but there are a few, a few reasons why I think this story is extremely important. One, this is one of only two times in the entire Bible when God responds to the failure of a people by threatening the extinction of that people. Okay, This is not usual for God to do. He does not normally say, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over. He doesn't normally say that. He, and especially when, that's, when he's talking about the chosen people of Israel. The only other time God threatens extinction to these people is in the golden calf incident. You remember that in Exodus, where he says, Moses, you know, kind of step to the side, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish them all. This is an important story. This failure is quite significant. Another reason I know that this is an important story is because the New Testament writers, the writers of the New Covenant, uh, the, the 27 books of the New Testament, often allude to this story when they tell us what not to do. Now, in our series, we have already looked at Paul the Apostle and what he said in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that we need to learn from the failures of Israel. And he, in that chapter, he'll go through some of their failures and he'll allude to this story right here, the spy story. Don't be like them in unbelief. But I want you to consider what another author of the New Testament says. Keep your finger here in Numbers 11 and just turn with me very briefly to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, where we learn, we'll see what the author of Hebrews says about this story. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 7, the first part of chapter 4. Hebrews 3, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, They will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. For who were those uh, who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? See, the story is coming. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies or carcasses fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, that's the promised land, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Near the end of this passage, the author of Hebrews says that the children of Israel received good news like us, but it did not benefit them because they did not have faith. Their good news was a report about the promised land. The promised land was just as God had described, flowing with milk and honey, large fruit and produce, but there was a problem for them. They didn't have faith. No doubt men and women, this story that we're going to look at today in the Old Testament is an important story. The authors of the New Testament reference it quite often in their own admonitions to New Covenant believers. And so what I want to do is I want to go quickly through this story. Look at Numbers 13. I think we can go through it pretty quickly. This story in Numbers 13, the first half of the story, emphasizes the role of the spies themselves. And so as we look at this story, I want to especially focus on the 12 spies that are sent into the land. The spies' story comes in three sections in chapter 13. And so let's look at the first one that emphasizes the selection of the spies, Numbers 13, verses 1 through 20. So look in your Bible. I'm going to read this section. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, saying, or spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these, these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakor. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hashia, or Hashia, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulon, Gadiel, the son of Saudi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Sushi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vovsi, from the tribe of Gad, Gul, the son of Maki, these were the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hashia, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage, 
and bring some fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Verses 1 through 20 in this story, this true story of the spies, starts out with the selection of the spies. Other than uh, the difficulty in pronouncing the names uh, of some of the spies and their fathers, uh, these verses are pretty straightforward in uh, what they uh, proclaim here. Moses identifies 12 spies from the 12 tribes of Israel and then gives them instructions about their mission. They must go in to the promised land, scout it out, and determine primarily what two things are like. They're supposed to find out what the land is like and what the inhabitants are like. From these first 20 verses, I I do want to just draw a few important observations I think would be helpful for understanding of this passage. I've got three of them here. First, at the beginning in verse 2, I want to draw your attention to the very first words uh, there that the Lord gives to Moses. He says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. Now, one of the things I want to point out is that phrase, send men, uh, could be translated, send men for yourself to spy out the land. And I'll tell you why I think that might be significant in just one moment. There's another place in the Old Testament scripture that describes the sending in and the selecting of the spies. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, one of the differences between the two accounts is that the people of Israel ask God for permission to send spies in. Whereas here in this passage, it comes at the impulse of God. So, you know, as we're reading this text, it's God says to send in the spies. Deuteronomy says the people ask to send in the spies and that God allows it. I think one of the things uh, that you can do when you compare the two passages is to learn that the people do initiate this because my personal opinion is they don't really trust the surveillance of God. See, God's got the land all scouted out, but it's going to make them feel better if they could send some spies in and check it out. And uh, I think an allusion to this could be found in the the first words of verse 2. Send men for yourself. Moses, you check them yourself and send them in. Uh, in other words, I think God is doing something like this in, in Numbers 13. You know, since you can't trust me then, and, and you need this, then go ahead and send the spies in. Now, I, what I also want to draw your attention to is the type of men that Moses selects. I mean, two times here in the text it says that he, he selects chief men or leading men of the 12 tribes of Israel. I guess one from each tribe. And, and he selects, I think, young, vibrant men, but men who are leaders in their tribes. And this is going to be important because later on, the strength and the significance of these men and their selection will give even further credence and support to their report. The point I'm making here, basically, if you're having trouble following on a rainy Sunday, is uh, these are really sharp guys that Moses picks to send in. And, And the people already are willing to follow their leadership. Finally, I want you to consider that of the 12 spies named here in this passage, only two of them will ever be named again in your Bible. Caleb and Joshua. 
The other 10 men are never named again. This is one moment of opportunity or significance for these men to make an impact for the name of God. What an opportunity, but it did not go well for them. So I stopped and thought about that this week. I thought, you know, perhaps God would give us one significant opportunity to bring glory to his great name. I pray that we would not be like these 10 men who don't believe that God can do it. That leads us from the selection of the spies to their journey, verses 21 through 25. And so look with me at the journey of the spies, verse 21. It says, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehov, near Labo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Telmai, the descendants of Enoch, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and some figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So this is just a narration of the journey that these spies took. And the, the journey that they took was a rugged one, right? If you, uh, if you have a map and, and you do all of the work, you can see that their journey would be through the wilderness, up and down mountains, uh, into valleys. Their journey covers approximately 250 miles in every direction. So they're, they're doing this very quickly. It, it takes about 40 days to Texas. It takes them 40 days to do all of this. Now, in Moses' Moses's report on their journey, there are two things I think that he emphasizes. Uh, first, he emphasizes the inhabitants of the land. He begins to emphasize them here. We'll hear more about them as we go throughout the story. But in verse 22 especially, Moses lists the, the name of three men whom he describes as the descendants of Anak, the Anakites. The descendants of, the, of Anak become then infamous throughout the rest of the Old Testament for their formidable military strength. They are well known and feared for their strength and their size. As a matter of fact, years later, descendants of these giants are found along the Philistine coast in Joshua chapter 11. You can read about how hard it was for the children of Israel to deal with these uh, descendants. Later, the descendants of Anak were among the warriors that David, King David, had to face and work his way through killing, including one of their most famous representatives, the Philistine Goliath, who sprung from the same seed as these descendants of Anak. I was reading this week in, in a text in Deuteronomy, and it describes the bed of one of these descendants, a king. And it describes it in cubits, and it says that this iron bed of this great man, this king, was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. 13 feet long, 6 feet wide. Now, it was not just done out of extravagance for this man. It was done out of necessity. He was a big man, big king. 
And so as we go through here, when, when, when Moses starts talking about the, the, the people they run into, the descendants of Anak, we begin to learn that these are giant men. But then secondly, in verses 23 and 24, he emphasizes the fruit of the land. And, and I, I want to just focus just very briefly on his description of the grapes that they find. They find the grapes in the Valley of Eshkel. Okay, the Valley of Eshkel, the word Eshkel literally means, in Hebrew it means cluster. And the way this is described, I mean, I think we can just hear this story and just not think about this story very much, but the way the story is described is these spies cut down one, one cluster of grapes, and it takes two men to carry that one cluster of grapes on a pole between them. It's a significant cluster of grapes. I'm sure these grapes look, would look even bigger to people who've been in a desert wilderness for over a year. One Jewish scholar reminds us here that he said, this gigantic cluster could be born only by two men working together. And so this is what he emphasizes. He emphasizes that uh, while they're on their journey, they run into large inhabitants and large grapes. That leads us to what I'll just call the final part of this first section, the report of the spies. So you see their selection, their journey, and now they come back and they give a report. Their report comes in two movements. Uh, Two movements. The content of the report itself is verses 26 through 29. So look with me at the content. It says, And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So here's the report itself, okay? It's content. In their original report, all the 12 spies are unanimous. Their unanimous report is, the land is good, and the inhabitants are giants. Okay, and there are many of them. Their statement about the land is glowing. It flows with milk and honey. Just an elaborate description of the bounty of the promise is flowing with milk and honey, and the grapes that they brought back are amazing. Now, matching the abundant and sizable fruit are the numerous and powerful people with their large fortified cities. The peoples include the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and then they tell them about the descendants of Anak, the giant warriors. Now, when we hear this story, remember, this is a familiar story. You've known that song for quite, quite some time. When we hear it, this is not new news to us. But I want you to just imagine for a moment, you're the children of Israel. You've traveled for over a year. You've come from Egypt. God has, God has led you. He's brought you to this place. And you don't know what the inhabitants are like. We know that because when Moses says, he says to go, and he says, I want you to find out whether they're big people, small people, fortified cities, not. And so then this news comes. We have these large giants inhabiting the city. That's the report. 
But the chapter is not over, and this first part isn't over, and I want to draw your attention to verses 30 through 33, and I think this will be very intriguing for us. When we have the second part of the report, and I call this the conclusion, the conclusions, plural, from the spies' report. Okay, so they all give this report, it's unanimous, great land, big people. Okay, then the conclusions. Look at verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Enoch, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. I love the end of part of this story. If you just pay attention, it's really amazing what happens here. Okay, so what Moses is telling us when he writes this is that people, the spies came to different conclusions from what they saw. They all saw the same thing, but they come to different conclusions, and he starts with Caleb. Caleb, here's how the spies, and Caleb is one of the spies, how they describe the events. He does not disagree with it, but he promptly interjects his faith into it. To do so, to begin Caleb in verse 30, he must, the text says he must quiet the people. I think the people are already stirring. They're already beginning to grumble and complain when they hear about the giants in the land. So, Caleb quiets them, and Caleb's conclusion is stated in verse 30. He says, let us go up at once to occupy it. Okay, now that phrase could be translated something like this, uh, if you're taking it literally. He says, going up, let us go up. It doesn't really do very well in English. Going up, let us go up. Or, while we're on the move, let's move get into the city. And and Caleb thinks this is the best move because he says, we are able to overcome these people. He has faith. Then we learn about the ten spies. All the spies can see is the strength of the giants. The actual words that they use, I think, are found in verses 32 and 33. Middle of verse 32 and 33, so look at their actual words. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw are of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Enoch who come from Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. I, I, want, to, I want to look at their words for a second, because we're, we're text people, right? It's a good story, good story, but God inspired these words. Okay, so what can we learn about the report? Well, I think it's at this point that the 10 spies begin to deliberately distort the data. Okay, get that. Deliberately distort the data and give a bad report. Their distortion involves both the land and the the inhabitants. They say, actually, people, Caleb... The land has issues that you need to know about. So what we see in the text, it says, 
The land is a land that devours its inhabitants. You see that? You ever wonder what that means? I mean, we're text people. We try to figure out what the Bible means, right? It's a land that devours its inhabitants. Well, it's not especially clear what this metaphor is of land swallowing up people. Its purpose is clear. The spies want to frighten the people away from the land. Okay, now, my personal opinion here is that maybe the positions and the pleasures of Canaan make it a likely place to be unstable. Or another way of saying this is, others would always want access to Canaan because it's a land bridge and because of the extravagant resources of this fertile area. So in that way then, it's a land that's constantly devouring up people as they try to protect it. So the spies trying to frighten the people say something like this, yeah, it's a good land if you can keep it. If you can keep it. It's a land that devours people up. I think they're beginning to distort the data here. Their distortion of the inhabitants is that the inhabitants are not only all tall, they are the Nephilim, or they descend from the Nephilim. You say, well, what are the Nephilim? Matter of fact, in some of your English Bibles, it's just translated giants, this word Nephilim. Well, I'll try to help you with this. That is, these spies here are suggesting that the inhabitants are from the infamous giants who populated the world before the flood. Back in Genesis chapter 6, there is uh, a union described there before the flood of the sons of God. You remember this? The sons of God joining with the daughters of men, and their offspring are the Nephilim, giants, strong men. And although that's a mysterious text, I mean, you go to the commentators, you go to the scholars, they try to figure out, well, who are the sons of God? Are these angelic beings, or are they just like significant, you know, genetically stronger human beings? I think, you, you know, difference of opinion, I, I think probably just human beings. I don't think angels are sexless beings and can reproduce, but regardless, um, as, we, as we go through this text, I, I think what's, what's happening here, it's hard to know for sure, Fantastic folklore about the Nephilim does appear to have existed during the days of Moses. Some people during Moses' day thought that the Nephilim were demigods of supernatural strength. Again, again, I think that they're just human beings, you know, giants, but human beings. But some people during Moses' day, some of the Israelites thought that they were demigods. So these spies suggest that the descendants of Enoch come from the Nephilim. They somehow survived the flood. And that this is what we have. I, I, I think this is an example, it appears to me, of the ten spies exaggerating for rhetorical effect. They're distorting the data. These descendants, I, I think they come from the Nephilim. And then they wrap up their conclusions, and their data distortion, I think, comes to a new height at the very end when they say that when they were walking around the promised land, they felt like little grasshoppers before these giants. And you know they're beginning to distort the data because now all of the sudden these spies, you know, have been given 
omniscient knowledge of the thoughts of the giants themselves. Yeah, it's like, they say, not only were we grasshoppers, did we think we were grasshoppers? That's what they thought about us. This is the bad report of the ten spies. And I I just want to pause here in conclusion, and I want to just say what a dramatic difference of perspectives. Caleb and the ten spies. It is amazing that people can see the same exact things but come to entirely different conclusions. Now I think, and I've tried to point out several times, it's important to note that Caleb does not contradict the content of the scouts' report, only their conclusions. You might be here today and say, you know, this, you hear this story and think, well, for us, we need to always count the cost. I mean, for us, we, we cannot be blindly optimistic or ignorant of the facts. And I, I would just say, to begin with here, Caleb wasn't ignorant or unwilling to consider the facts, but... Caleb factors in something that the ten spies do not. The spies are missing something. Have you ever tried to figure out a math problem before? And forgotten to include some important factor in the, you know, the, the problem? Whatever reason, in, in our family, I'm the one that's normally designated to help our kids with math problems. And their homework, you know. And I'll confess before you, don't tell them, I have forgotten a lot of what I learned in algebra and trigonometry and stuff. Okay. But you ever been trying to help your, your, your son or daughter through something like this, or you're working through a math problem, and you get the whole way to the end, and then you realize you forgot, like, a very important piece of the problem. The spies here forget to factor in God. And that's an important part of their problem and solution. They said, we can't do this, but Caleb's we includes God. Yeah, we can overcome it. We can go in there. We can get this. In other words, I think as we're learning from the spies here, one of the main lessons is that the bad spies Magnify the problems and minimize the person and the power of God. Not Caleb, though. He sees the obstacles, but he quickly interjects that God can do it. As we're thinking of application here today, may we always quickly interject the power of God into our crises or problems. Not that we're just blessedly ignorant. You know, praise God. I understand the significance of the challenge that we're facing, but God can overcome it. Might we be like Caleb here? By the way, I I love the testimony of an elderly Caleb 40 years after this. I won't give away the rest of the story, but we know what God does. One generation dies off, but Caleb, because he has faith here, he's able to survive. And and then as an 85-year-old man, as he's leading the charge into the city of Hebron, 
Caleb says, I want that mountain. It belongs to me. See, the faith of this man, his zeal and his faith in God never settle, even as an 85-year-old man. So we go throughout this story today, we, we've seen the failures of Israel. And so men and women, I, I, want to, I want to ask God that we would learn from the spies. Let's consider the problems and the obstacles like they do, but, but always magnify the power of God. I don't know what situation you might be facing that is overwhelming you. The situation itself involves difficulties or challenges. Perhaps it's a health issue, a financial pressure, some other pressure. Again, God is not calling you to wear rose-colored glasses or to be blindly optimistic or to refuse to acknowledge the challenges of your life in your life or even in the life of our church. But may we always include God in the way we factor things out, even as an assembly. A few weeks ago, we put forward a strategic plan, a five-year plan. In that plan, there's a lot of cool things I'm really excited about. Probably the ones I'm most excited about are opportunities for mission, for mission. Just to highlight a few of them. We believe that in the next five years, we want to plant a local assembly, another church, by the glory of God, and by his provision. When you look at that sort of thing, what you're deciding to really do from a financial perspective, you're deciding to give a lot away, you give away a lot of money and a lot of resources from your own assembly to another assembly to get it going. Someone could do the math and look at all of that and say, hey, I've got a bunch of figures here I want you to see. Okay, this is how much you're bringing in right now. And this, uh, you say you're going to give $25,000 a year to a church planner, to plant a church, and then you're going to send some families with them maybe. Is that what you're going to do? Okay, it's going to cost you this much a year. This is what you're getting in right now. This is what it will cost you. Okay, and if we're not careful, we can be really negative and say, well, there's no way to get there. We, we can't do it. But our we must factor in God. God can. Part of the strategic plan is a desire to be sending our own members into the world for mission. And men and women, it's looking like in the next few years, we'll have the opportunity to send at least two of our own members out as missionaries from Colonial Baptist Church. Someone could look at the books, the financial statements, and wonder, I mean, how are you going to add thousands of dollars to your mission budget to send two missionaries to other places across the world. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But again, I say we must factor in a belief that God can. He can. Sure, I think we need to be prudent. We need to, we, we need to see the obstacles, the challenges, and not ignore them. We can acknowledge them, but we must magnify God's ability to get it done if he really wants to do it. And so as we work through this text, our conclusions must factor in God. His power is unlimited. He can save. He can provide. And may our impulse as a congregation be to promptly 
interject God back into all of our conversations about obstacles and trials and resources. Let's learn from the faith of Caleb, who said, going up, let's go. We can do this by the strength and power of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. There's much here to learn. There's much to learn about faith. The author of Hebrews picks this up and warns New Covenant believers, do not pull back in faith. Don't waver. Don't doubt the provision, the power of God. Lord, I pray that if nothing else in this sermon, it would be obvious that this text is calling us to a robust faith in God. You can provide. You can do whatever you want. And Lord, help us to to trust you. Lord, as we consider the own obstacles that we face in our lives, physical trials, financial trials, whatever they may be, let, help us to realistically grasp the nature of the trial, to acknowledge this is what I'm facing, but then as well to say, but I believe in the power of God. He can provide a way. Lord, may we trust you, we pray, and would you do great things among us? as you did with the second generation, the Israelites, Caleb and Joshua, and those like them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.